you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Peter with me, chapter 5 this morning. And I would like to speak to you before we celebrate Lord's Table on a topic of pastoral ministry in exile. What's it look like? You know, the governments are of our world, this is no surprise, bounce around between democracy and dictatorship. It's usually in one of those extreme polars. You may be surprised to know this, though, if you read church history, that that is often the case with churches, too. They seem to fall into a domineering, top-down leadership model. Or, on the other side, they try to mirror a democracy of, of the people, for the people, and by the people. Now, this may insult some of you, or perhaps anger a few of you, or aggravate you at the least, that neither one of those are actually the biblical concept of how the church is to be governed. It's not to be an autocracy. It's not to be a democracy. It's to be a delegated theocracy. <laughs> that is what we see in the scriptures. You see, God entrusts leadership in his body, the church, the flock, who will be responsible for others, and both of them are responsible to the leadership of Christ. So what we see in the pastoral epistles, for instance, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, what we see in the other epistles, the letters in the New Testament, as well as what we see in the book of 1 Peter, is that there are leaders that God entrusts to be responsible for certain amounts or flocks of his people, and both the leaders and the flock are responsible to Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. But what does that look like? I've got you a handout in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, and I have three points here that I think will help us hook our thoughts of this passage on, and that is the titles that are given. There are three different titles given for the same office. There are temptations that are particularly seductive to the elders, and then finally I want you to see that there's a termination. There's some good news at the end of this message. You will not have me a past, as your pastor forever. Okay, so that's the good news, all right? Uh, but we'll look at that in just a moment. The first aspect that I would like us to consider are the various titles that are given to the pastor, the elder, the overseer. So let's read together our text this morning. It's the same text that we looked at last week, uh, verses 1 to 4 of 1 Peter. So please follow along with me. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are three titles. So my first point are the titles that are given to this one position. I would like to make an argument that I believe you will find to be true as you study the scriptures, that there are three different titles used for the position of leadership in the local church, but they're not three different positions. They're actually titles that are used interchangeably for the same position. Now, if you've been around a Baptist church for any length of time, you know that we believe in two offices in the local church, that of the elder, pastor, or overseer, that's one office, and the office of the deacon. So we believe that these titles are used interchangeably. Now, I must say, we don't believe this is a first-tier issue. So we have good friends of other denominations 
that disagree with this approach and believe that these positions should be divvied up into multiple positions beyond that of pastor and deacon, and we do not believe they're living in sin. <laughs> we believe that they will understand that they were wrong when we get to heaven. That's what we believe. But the titles that are given here, the first one is the one that's most often used. It's that of elder. You'll notice in verse number one of chapter five, I exhort the elders, and then he calls himself an elder, and then if you look at verse 5, which Pastor Joe is going to unpack for us next week, God willing, he talks about how that the church needs to be submissive. Again, in verse 5, it says, to the elders. Now, what exactly does this word mean? The word elder is actually the most often used word to describe these, this position of the leaders of the church. Now, as I mentioned last week, real quickly, Peter starts this off by saying, He's an elder too. And he's also exhorting them based on two things. He was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. You'll see that in verse 1, which simply means that he is being very transparent. This was not Peter's shining moment. This was actually when, Jesus, when Peter denied Jesus as his Lord. It was a moment where he observed the trials. He observed Gethsemane. He observed the beatings, but he cowarded, and he did not pronounce his loyalty and belief in Jesus, but he's able to say, I was restored. John 21 is the account where Jesus says, do you love me? Three times, if you love me, feed my lambs. He was restored to ministry. This is a very encouraging passage, especially for us pastors, that Peter is saying, I'm one of you. I'm not perfect. In fact, I blew it on the biggest stage, but I'm an elder. I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. But then he looks forward to the glory. He said, I'm also anticipating my partnership in his glory. He's talking about his second coming, when the chief shepherd appears again, his second advent. Now remember, Peter was an observer to his glory, but not a participant. You know what I'm talking about? Matthew 17, we're told that, the, that, that Peter, James, and John got to see the transfiguration of Jesus. They got to see his garments glowing. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it says it glowed like fuller soap. I love that, like fuller soap. Okay, anyway, he saw the glory, but he didn't participate in it. But he looks forward to the day when he's going to participate in that glory because he's in Christ. But he uses this word elder, and that's what I want us to focus on, these three different titles. The word elder, we get our English word Presbyterian from. It's the word presbyteros. Now, we are not sure the etymology of this word. What I mean by that is we're not certain when it became the word to describe the leaders of the local church. Some would say, well, it's back in the Old Testament when we see Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, saying you need to get some help, and so they appointed elders. Others say that it was taken from the synagogue time period that they had elders. But there's no connection really in the New Testament that points to that. What we do know is the word elder means bearded one. Thus, I'm trying. <laughs> Not really. But, but the bearded one was an expression to talk about gravitas, to talk about some of your favorite words, maturity, and that ability to have some weightiness. It, 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 it's the contrast of an impulsiveness. It's the contrast of somebody who's easily swayed. But the word primarily focuses on this position's leadership. That the position of elder, of pastor, of overseer, 
is to be one of leading in the local church. It's always used in the masculine when it describes this position in the local church. We believe that it does not communicate inferiority nor superiority, but it reflects the God-given roles that the scriptures reveal to us that this position is only for the male in the local New Testament church. It's not only in the masculine, this word is used always when it describes the officers of the local church as plural. So there's a plurality. Now some of us are accustomed to Baptist church models that have more of the pyramid approach where you have a senior pastor and everybody else kind of comes under that. What we actually see reflected in the scriptures is a plurality of leadership. There's a safety, there's accountability, and even these little flocks that were meeting in, lo- in, in homes because they were in exile, they didn't have buildings like we do, they had a plurality of leadership. But I want you to see this. When we're talking about this word, don't think of them as three different offices. I think the way to think of them, and I want to suggest this to you, is that there are three different nuances of the job description. You should view your elders in any local church, and specifically this local church, as the ones that ought to be leading. They should be putting forth a God-given, as they seek the Lord in prayer and study of the word, an agenda that we believe God has for this local flock. And you should expect that kind of leadership, not just simply responding to the various whims of the flock, but actually casting forth leadership and saying, this is the way of the Lord, let's walk in it. Now, it was about eight years ago, after about 12 years, no, 14 years of marriage, that my wife finally gave in to getting a dog. It was a wonderful moment. And I remember that little puppy on her lap, and I watched her melt, and I knew I had her. She's regretted sometimes that emotional decision years later, But I do remember, and I heard people talking about establishing yourself as the alpha in that dog's life. I was like, how do you do that? I mean, what what do you do? Do do Are you like really harsh? Do you bark at the dog, you know, in orders, and then he cowers? That's some people's approach. But I learned that I became the alpha in my dog's life. By the way, his name is Brady. Um, Anyway, I just thought I would throw that in there. The way I became the alpha in my dog's life is because the first six weeks that we had him, every morning about 3 a.m., I would hear him whining and I would take him out to go potty. I was the one who gave him care. I was the one that took care of his needs. And he's rewarded with me by being the alpha in his life. What the Lord has established in the church is not alpha leadership, but he has established a hierarchy of those that are supposed to provide for the needs and cast a vision and leadership for the local church. You, as any local flock, are supposed to have recognized leaders among the flock that are set aside to lead this local body. That's the way the Lord set it up. Now, you'll notice in verse 5 that if you have leadership, you must have what? Followership. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. If you have leadership, you must have followership. Look at verse 5 of chapter 5, and again, Pastor Joe's going to deal with this text next week, God willing, but verse 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I don't believe he's now talking about age demographics. He's referring again to the same thing. This is the maintenance of it, 
that the local flock needs to follow their leaders as they cast vision. In other words, it would be inappropriate for the sheep to cast their own vision, decide their own agenda, and to try to lead their own little part of the flock. That's what's called a schism. That's that is called out in the scriptures as something that the leaders need to deal with and highlight. So an elder speaks of leadership. The next word, though, is used as a verb. Notice this in verse number two. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, this is the word that we're most familiar with, right? Pastoring, poimain, um, the shepherding aspect of the ministry of the elder or the overseer. But it's actually used the least. In here, it's used as a verb. Now, I want to give you, if I haven't said this to you before, when you're studying your Bible on your own, this is a tool that will be helpful for you. When you're reading a passage, look for the verbs. Passages are driven by the verbs. And this is the verb here. It's used as a verb, not as what we're often familiar with, the noun. Actually, the noun's only used one time in the New Testament. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that gifts are given to the church, and one of those gifts, those verbal gifts, is the pastor-teacher? That's the only time it's used as a noun. It's only used two other times, and it's used as a verb, here and in Revelation. The word means to shepherd the flock. Now, here's a challenge. We're not, many of us, agrarian, so our view of shepherding has become very docile. We think of patting little lambs on the head and just kind of warm fuzzies, I think, when we think about shepherding and pastoring. But actually, when this verb is used in another place in the book of Revelation, it's describing Jesus Christ as ruling, shepherding the nations with an iron rod. Now, I'm not suggesting that your pastors need to carry around an iron rod. But what I want you to see here is that they're supposed to be feeding, leading, and guarding the sheep. It's actually a very masculine, if I could say that, job description. And I think we've kind of feminized it in the sense that when we think of shepherds, we, we have these cute views. It reminds me of how we often view our Lord Jesus. I think mainly because of the painting and the artwork that you'll often see. So we get this idea that Jesus was less than masculine. Let's not forget that this same Jesus, who is compassionate, and he calls all to himself because he's meek and lowly of heart, is the same one who drove out the money changers from the temple with a whip, and he turned their tables over. He was the same one that would look in the eye of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, you're whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. So let's not get this idea of shepherding as always just warms and warm fuzzy patting the sheep on the head. While there is this care, and this word does speak towards the relationship, this tells us what the leaders are supposed to be doing. The leaders are supposed to be leading and feeding. So when you think of shepherding, again, this touches on the job description, what are your expectations from your elders? And are those expectations biblical? Sometimes this pushes against what we would desire. For some of us, we may say, you know what, my ideal shepherd is somebody who's always there when I need them. And certainly that's a wonderful quality of a shepherd. Perhaps our idea of a shepherd is somebody who is regularly calling you, regularly checking on how your health is, and those are wonderful aspects of a shepherd. 
But you will recall that in Acts chapter 6, the elders there, the apostles at that time, said we actually need to prioritize something. And it wasn't even caring for the Grecian widows who were upset because they weren't getting their regular meals on wheels. You remember that little hiccup, and that will bring a hiccup in a local church. But the elders said we must devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer. You see, what pastoral ministry is, what your elders should be elevating, is regularly feeding you. My, my dad worked second shift. I've referenced that on occasion. So my mom would prepare meals for my brother and myself almost every evening without dad being home. And we would try to keep outside as long as we could and be as far away from the house because we couldn't legitimately hear our mom call us for dinner. And I remember on occasion we'd come in and, and my kids do it now, what's for dinner? And it might not be something I was fond of. And I remember mom saying something like, you know what, I slaved over this meal for hours, and that's your response, you want cereal? You know, that's, that's the feeling sometimes you can have as a pastor. Because if we're doing our job right, we ought to be slaving over this, this meal that we're ready to deliver to you on Lord's Day each Sunday. And you, as the sheep, should be well fed. You should expect that. Because that's what God has called us to do. Feed my lambs, he tells Peter three times. If you love the chief shepherd, feed his lambs. And then there's this third title, all the same position, overseer. Do you see that there? Now again, it's used as a verb. He says exercising or participle oversight. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. And then he's going to start talking about the temptations. Now you will recognize this word. Our English word is episkopos. You hear the word Episcopalian? You hear that? So you know Episcopalian churches? There's a heavy emphasis on the management or the oversight in those churches. If you have a King James Version, you may recall that in 1 Timothy 3, it's described as the office of the bishop. So I've tried this around my house to say every now and then it'd be good if my kids would call me bishop, but, but, but they haven't caught on though. But, but, but bishop means an Episcopalian, somebody who oversees. The real function here is describing not just the preaching and teaching and leading ministry, but the administrative side of leadership that's required. Because pastoral ministry, whether you understand it or not, is not just working on Wednesdays or Sundays, as the proverbial phrase goes. Must be nice just working two days a week. Actually, there is a lot of administration and their call to oversee the flock. And that's not just you know, paper clips and managing your post-it notes and being on time for your appointments is actually looking at the whole flock and all of the endeavors of that ministry. It's also looking at the health of the flock, evaluating and watching out for false teaching that's starting to pop up in the flock and addressing it and confronting it. All of that is part of this position. So here we have three titles but you basically have the job description for what you should expect from the plurality of elders at East Brandywine Baptist Church. They should be people who are caring for the flock in terms of leadership, feeding, as well as oversight. Now, if I could just pull this together for our thoughts and our edification, this kind of shepherding is described as the plan of the chief shepherd. Let's not miss this. 
that the maker of heaven and earth, our redeemer, decided to carry out his work like this. So this plan is not just something we came up with as a Baptist church that was started 177 years ago. This is actually a plan that our Lord Jesus, who's building his church, designed. That he would go to heaven and between his ascension and session and his second coming, that people would trust in Christ, they would believe the gospel, they would be gathered together in congregations, those congregations would be led by elders who are also called pastors or overseers. That was his design. They would be served by deacons. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and it puts so much spectacular value on what we do here. This is not something that somebody just came up with. It's something that our Lord Jesus designed. So when you see the church, do you see it that way? He says, exercising the oversight, giving discipleship and direction. They're supposed to feed and lead. But doesn't this kind of push against the radical autonomy that we see so prevalent in our world today and that I have seen leaking its way into the local church? Perhaps you've seen it too. What I mean by radical autonomy is, is this approach to the Christian life that's fairly isolated. This idea that my walk with God is a matter of primarily Jesus and me. And, and I really don't need in any vital way the community of faith, the church, or its leadership. My walk with God is private. I've actually found that there are some saints, even members of a local church, that find it surprising if a spiritual leader inquires about some area of their life that they're concerned about in a spiritual aspect. How dare you? This is my private walk with Jesus. But I believe all of that goes along with our consumer mindset that we have now today, right? So this consumer characteristics help people choose churches in 2020. Not a lot of choosing of churches, I guess, in this year, but, but in 2021, it'll be the case again. Consumer characteristics, what I mean by that is people can look at their local church or their church that they perhaps will become part of as like what they do when they choose their favorite department store or grocery store. I mean, I chose it because they put things on the right aisles. It's where you would expect it to be. Or they don't play too loud of music. Do you remember when Target first opened? The thing that struck me about Target versus Walmart is it was silent. Remember this? It was like they were going to do the opposite of, we need you on aisle 14, we need waters. You know, they did that the entire time in Walmart. I think they still do. But in Target, it was like deathly quiet, silent. Like, this is different. But people began to choose their churches based on, well, I like this, and I like this, and I like this. Well, then all of a sudden, if the management changes, or if they stop having the product that they always enjoyed, and they stop selling it, I'll find another store. Well, well, that's about the commitment, the average commitment that believers have to local churches these days. And we've been systematically taught not to trust our leaders because we've seen bad corporate leaders, we've seen bad political leaders, we've seen bad spiritual leaders, and it's eroded our trust. And that leads us to the temptation. So how should we, we know what to expect now with these titles, how should we pray for and what will be the particular seductions that your elders face? Here they are. Three are given. 
And it tells us that motives are important. There are three adverbial modifiers here, each negatively and positively stated. So he's going to say, don't do this. This is something that elders should not do, but do this instead. I want you to see this. You can see the word not. It helps us see the various ad adverbial modifiers here. Look at verse 2 again. After exercising oversight, it says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the first one is, the temptation is for your elders, your pastors, your overseers, to lose their vision. To do things because they have to, not because they want to. It's possible for your pastors, similar to your day job, to become almost like a treadmill and almost like autopilot where there is no heart in their ministry anymore. And he says they are supposed to do it not by outward compulsion, but willingly because this is how God would have it. Not only this is how God would have it, this is how Jesus was. Remember in John 4 when Jesus' disciples went to get lunch? They came back, he's discipling or he's giving the gospel to the woman at the well, and he says, I have lunch already. And they were like, where did he get lunch? He said, here's my lunch to do the will of God, my Father who sent me. Look at the fields, they're white into harvest. So what is described by Peter here is that there's this possibility of a loss of vision. I remember in seminary, we would have pastors from time to time come in and speak to us. And this particular statement would always annoy me somewhat. You would hear them come in and say, they give these flashy testimonies like, I was a great athlete. They would tell you the sport and how they were potentially going to be drafted or potentially going to play either minor league or professional sports. But I just knew I had to preach. Okay. And then another guy would say, you know, well, I was, was going to be a great, successful entrepreneur and businessman, but, but I went ahead and gave in to God, and I'm preaching. Or I was going to be a scientist or doctor, and I'd kind of sit there and say, I couldn't do any of those things. But, 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 but the passage says you're supposed to be doing it willingly. I mean, this ought to be the thing you desire. You want it. 1 Timothy 3 says that. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Folks, I, you may not like to hear this, but I love doing what I do. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't a pastor. It is a joy of my life. Only second to being husband to Becky and maybe third, and daddy to my kids. I mean, it's, it's the greatest joy of my life. It's something that I wake up sometimes saying, I get to do this for a living. What he's saying is, and this is what we say to any potential elder at East Brandywine Baptist Church, if you cannot do it, don't do it. If there's not a longing for this opportunity, then you should say no. He says there's a very real possibility of pastors, elders, falling into the doldrums of another counseling appointment, another message to preach, another Sunday morning. Pray for us that we don't fall into that temptation. Secondly, there could be desire for gain. And he says... There is this desire for shameful gain, but rather, instead of desiring shameful gain or possessions or popularity or stuff, actually desire it for being eager to serve. Look at this. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. 
Now, he's not just talking about money. He's actually talking about any kind of profit. He's saying it's a shameful thing for a shepherd to feed the sheep out of love for the fleece. That was a pun. And you just got it. Okay, okay. I'll say it again. It's a shameful thing for the shepherd to feed the sheep out of love for the fleece. I worked on that one hard this week. <laughs> okay, all right. You'll get it at lunchtime, maybe. But, he, but he's saying that there is this selfish greediness that can be part of the motivation rubric of the pastors. But it's not just money. It can be numbers are going a certain way. Will you preach that? Will you stand against that? Because there are some people that will leave and your livelihood depends on nickels and noses? I mean, what about when you get in that boardroom meeting and everybody starts going, look at the graphs. We got to stop doing this if we want this to change. This is a real temptation. It's a temptation for the leaders of a local church to allow their motivations to be contoured by what's popular with the flock. You say, I don't know if I like you here saying that. It's true. These are the temptations that Peter's saying, hey, here it is. They should actually be doing it eagerly, not so that they can prosper. And third, abuse of power and position. Not to be domineering over those in your charge. I want to say a couple things here. As he gives us the job description, he does it through the temptations. This last one here, he says there's the possibility of elders in local churches to abuse their power, to become heady and intoxicated with their own positions. They begin to lord it over. This word means to control, rule, or lord it over the consciences of the sheep. This is described in 3 John 9 and 10 of a person named Diotrephes that just wanted the preeminence. And I want you to know there are a variety of ways that this can happen. It can happen by us as your leaders adding to or taking away from the word of God. Our only authority from this pulpit, and someone wrote the word lectern up here. I think they were saying I was calling it the wrong thing. This pulpit or this lectern, I just noticed this, lectern. I don't know who put that up there. But um, what comes from this pulpit is only authoritative if it is based upon the words of God. There's also other ways to domineer, and domineering can be using our authority in a way that is contrary to how the scriptures tell us to be servants rather than lords over God's people. So you should be dealt with from servant leadership like a husband loves his wife, like Christ loves the church, but still provides godly, Christ-like leadership. That's what you should expect from your elders. You should also expect, though, what, look at the rest of this passage. It says that there is a soup, certain group of people that ought to be leading you. They're in their charge. Don't miss this. It says that, that God has divided up his flock worldwide, into flocks, herds, that under shepherds, elders, pastors are over. This is important, very practical, but super important. How does a pastor, how does an elder, how do the elders, the nine elders at EBBC, know who their sheep are? 
Well, you knew I was going to go there. On a practical level, it's almost impossible if people do not become members of this local church. Because I think you would agree with me that I am not the elder or spiritual leader for every Christian in Chester County. All God's people said you're not. (laughs) All I would have to do is show up at one Christian's house that doesn't come to this church and say, hi, I'm your spiritual leader. I'm here to check on you. What are you doing? Get out of here. You're crazy. The same thing's true. How do you know which spiritual leaders you're supposed to submit to and follow their lead? Apart from some type of covenant together, it makes it practically very difficult. See, what he's saying here is the chief shepherd has delegated his flock his leadership, his care to certain under-shepherds. And they are supposed to care for those under-shepherds, understanding that they are just under-shepherds. The chief shepherd is going to evaluate ultimately. I also want to remind you that he says that they're not supposed to domineer, but rather be an example to the flock. Do you see that there? This is important. He's saying that instead of dominating... Use your life as your greatest message. Now, this doesn't mean that your pastors or your elders are supposed to be perfect. In fact, you know that if that were the case, you wouldn't have any elders. So it can't mean perfect elders all the time. But here's what it means. It means that in a flock, here's the beauty. In a flock like this, you get to see nine elders and their families live amongst you you get to watch us interact with our wives you get to watch us deal with our children and raise our children you get to observe our sinning and apologizing and you extending forgiveness you get to see all of those things you get to watch us deal with with relational reconciliation and you get to observe that do you know your favorite radio preacher you don't get to observe that I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a favorite radio preacher as long as they're preaching the Bible. Your favorite podcast, your favorite video feed, you don't get to see their example in the warp and woof of life. And he's saying, these elders live right there with you. You see all the good, the bad, and the ugly, but at least they say, follow me as I follow Christ. So rather than domineering and saying, I'm in charge. No, I'm in this with you. And you follow me as I follow Christ. And then there's the termination. Final one before we celebrate Lord's table. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. When he returns as the chief shepherd, Christ will consummate the work of his under shepherds with his flock. And all God's people said, amen, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We don't have to submit to these leaders forever. (laughs) When the chief shepherd comes back, it expires our position but gladly. You see what he says here? When the chief shepherd appears, this will terminate this setup. This is temporary, that while Jesus is in heaven, before his second coming, he's given under shepherds among the flock to care for you in his name, in his word, but this is temporary. But he gives motivation, not only for the elders, but for the sheep. Listen to this as we conclude. He says that this should give you motivation because when he returns, the chief shepherd, he's going to give rewards for faithfulness. And it's going to be a reward that's unfading. He describes that wreath that would be placed on those in the Olympic Games when they would win. But these would be made out of oak leaves or 
or parsley. I mean, it was like a salad on your head. You worked all that time for a salad on your head. It's going to die. He says, you're going to get the unfading crown of glory. It's described as the crown of righteousness in other places, the crown of life. I believe this is all the glories of being in Christ. And it's those rewards that he promises his faithful believers. But here's the time that it happens. When Christ appears, Jesus is going to appear, folks, visibly. And it could be today. Maranatha! He's going to appear just like his disciples were looking up into heaven and they saw him disappear in the clouds. And the angel says he's going to come back the same way. Won't it be worth it all? It'll be worth your fight with sin, believer. Some of you have been really rigorously fighting with inward sin this week. You've failed. You've given in to that temptation this week. You've said that gossipy word. You've thought that pornographic thought. You've told that lie. But he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's coming back to take his people back to heaven with him forever in the new heaven and new earth. You see, all of this causes motivation in the Christian life. Pursuit of holiness, offense-covering love from your brothers and sisters. Why do you keep covering up so many offenses? Because the chief shepherd's coming back. That's why. You see, this is supposed to motivate elders to say, listen, please, Jesus, sheep, please, Jesus, don't allow yourself to be always focused on pleasing everybody else. Do you hear the story about the the shepherd who had a donkey, he had a little boy, and he had a flock of sheep, and he was going from one village to the next on a trip to take his flock to a different location. He comes to the first village, and he's just bringing, he's, he's guiding his donkey along, and the first village says, you should be riding that donkey. Shouldn't be guiding it. So he gets on the donkey, gets to the next village, and that village criticizes him because the little boy is walking by himself. He says, you should have the little boy on the donkey. Very selfish of you. He puts a little boy on the donkey, he gets to the next village, and they say, That little boy is disrespecting you. You both should be on the donkey. They both get on the donkey, they go to the next village. You guessed it. You don't care about donkeys. Both of you shouldn't be on that donkey. He was seen going to the next village carrying the donkey. This is what happens when you try to please people. I can get an amen there, yeah, guys. You, you, you can't. That's why Solomon, the wisest man besides Jesus who ever lived, said, if you let fear of man be your guide, it will always be a snare. And I want you to know something, and I say this as loving as I can. You need to pray that your elders will not fall trapped to try to please you. And I want to tell you, I love you. I want to please you. It hurts me and deeply wounds me when I don't please you. Okay, I'm going to be real candid with you. I like making you happy. But there are times where you don't need to be happy. You need to be uncomfortable. You need to be confronted. And you need to be called to repentance. And your response should not be to take your toys and go home. It should be to repent. You see, I heard one person say that these elders, these shepherds, these pastors need to have the mind of a scholar... The heart of a child, but the hide of a rhinoceros. And you need to pray for something similar. That your leaders 
would not just be asking everybody's popular opinion and walking in that way, but they would be seeking Christ, the chief shepherd, and guiding and leading and guarding and confronting and removing false teaching from this body because we know the chief shepherd's coming back. That's what we pray for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for even confrontational passages like this that describe the leadership of your local church. We ask that you would give us courage, give us compassion, help us be shepherds who love the sheep, who feed the sheep, who guard the sheep, who seek to live in a way that would be exemplary so that they can see what is it like when you fall? How do you get back up? How do you pursue Christ in all the various avenues of life? We pray that the elders in this local church would be those kinds of examples. Forgive us when we haven't been, O Lord. May we not domineer your flock. May we always do it willingly and eagerly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, please.